Okay, well, here we go. We're going to stay in the Word, all right? We're going to uh, touch upon grace and gratitude, okay, for us today. Uh, we're going to be back in Luke chapter 17, where we were last week. We're going to finish up the chapter, learn a little bit more about Jesus as he uh, teaches on the way to Jerusalem, teaches his disciples, uh, teaches uh, those who are um, uh, looking in, if you will, listening in, and certainly those who will come out of that crowd as converts uh, to faith in Christ uh, as their Savior. So let's uh, bow our heads with a word of prayer and uh, go from there. Heavenly Father, uh, grateful for some time in your word today and grateful for your love for us in Christ Jesus. Grateful that uh, we can also look in on one of these uh, teaching moments, one of those opportunities Christ was able to take along the way to Jerusalem to gather unto himself the disciples, the onlookers, the hearers, the listeners, the watchers, and even to bring some to faith in Him as both Lord and God. And so as we look at the text before us, just continue to pray that your Spirit works in our heart and mind to better understand our place in the text and uh, what your Spirit is saying to us through the Word. So thank you for loving us. We commend ourselves to you in our time together. And all God's people say, Amen. All right. Well, grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Can I get an Amen. Come on, right? All right, we're going to be wrapping up Luke 17, uh, as I said, and uh, we'll put the text up on the screen for you in just a moment, but don't forget that you can uh, take out uh, your phone, your tablet, you can even look in the pew back in front of you uh, if you want to, uh, to follow along, but uh, Mike will keep it up on the screen for us uh, as we go through it. So, as I said, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, making the most of every opportunity that he has. Uh, to instruct the disciples, the crowds, and the converted from in, within the crowds. And if you weren't able to join us last week, what happened last week was uh, it was still a continuation of his journey to Jerusalem. But what we saw happening last week was that those who were listening into this teaching opportunity were the Pharisees. And out of some of those Pharisees, his enemies, uh, they were converted to faith. And his instructions then were to the disciples about how they were to welcome in those into their midst who at one time they considered their enemies, right? Who at one time sought their destruction. And so you can see now that the, the crowd, if you will, the, the, the number of followers continues to grow. Um, and it's not just those who have been with him the whole time, but we're adding daily to the midst of those who are being saved. And so let's apply it to our life of faith. Let's put up Luke 17. We're going to begin at chapter, or excuse me, uh, verse 11 and uh, continue through verse 19. So, this is the text. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were what? Cleansed, healed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. We'll come back to that, right? Luke wouldn't have mentioned that unless it was important. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner and he said to him 
Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, that's the text for today's message. So what's the context? The context is this. I've told you a little bit about what you saw last week. But sandwiched in between last week's encounter with the Pharisees who had come to faith and being welcomed into the midst of the disciples, all right, sandwiched in between that slice of bread and today's slice of bread uh, was an incident in the life of Jesus where he raises Lazarus from the dead. If you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with that scenario, that scene, that story, right? That's John chapter 11. Luke will make mention of it, but he doesn't give it the attention John gives to it. And so the lepers, you can understand the word about Jesus and Jesus' ability not only to heal the sick, but to raise the dead is spreading. And so it's easy to see how they could say, well, if he's able to raise the dead, certainly he can help us with this dreaded disease, right? Because this is a disease which eats away at your flesh. You are literally experiencing a living death. And so as the word spreads and gains the attention, they respond to the spread of that word and to the approach of Jesus. And that's where we are today. But as I said earlier, Luke makes special mention that this guy's a Samaritan and Jesus calls him a foreigner, right? Luke even tells us that they're on the border of Samaria and Judea, all right? It's like a ethnic dividing line, a racial dividing line, a religious dividing line. There couldn't be anything more obvious than this line which, which kept the Samaritans and the Jews apart. And yet here they're together. But he heals 10 of them at one time, which obviously is a big deal in of itself. But as we're going to learn here shortly, the fact that it does involve a Samaritan makes the miracle, well, even more miraculous. (laughs) I mean, consider the Good Samaritan story, right? You're familiar with that, also recorded in the Gospel of Luke, right? It's a story of the outcast, isn't it? It's the story of the marginalized. It's the story where God uses those who are on the margins to showcase His grace and His glory, His compassion, His power. And in our case, it's going to be the very same thing today with this one guy who came back to give thanks. But anyway, so you've got 10 of them, right? They're a mixed company, with one being an outsider, but still uh, part of the group. I mean, misery loves company in this particular uh, scenario, I guess. But what matters to these men, okay, at this point, since they are experiencing a living death, isn't ethnicity or race or religion, (laughs) but it's just living, right? It's just living. And what they did have together is that they had hope. They had hope in whom uh, this Christ that they had heard of, right? Because there is Jesus right there before them, and what did they do? They cry out for mercy. Mercy. Now, the story we have before us is a lesson on salvation. It's a lesson on faith. It's a lesson on gratitude. It's one that transmits, uh, describes for you and me those values and characteristics embodied in the, the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, right? Think about it this way. Now, when we hear that cry for mercy, we automatically go, well, these men are simply wanting to be healed, right? That's what they're asking for. 
I mean, most of our prayers that we put on our prayer page, right, are simply for people to be healed from something that they're experiencing uh, physically. But this cry for mercy is not first and foremost a cry for healing. Does that surprise you? That surprised me first when I looked at it. The word that the men used actually is a word which means salvation. These men are crying to be saved. The healing part can be a distraction to us as we read through the text. Even the lack of gratitude on the nine, which we'll get to shortly, can be a distraction to us on the text. Brothers and sisters, first and foremost, this story is instead a continuation on the theme of Jesus' life and ministry. God's rescue of those who are in bondage to sin. God's rescue of those who are in bondage to darkness and Satan and death. Uh, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God's rescue. Lepers begged Christ for mercy and mercy was given to them. It was their faith, their belief in him. Something that he and only he alone could provide. That's why in verse 13 of the text, if you'd put that back up, Mike. Verse 13 of the text, they call him master, right? Master, and that word translated master is also used by Peter in, a, in, a, in another episode or scene. And it means chief commander, like the boss of bosses, <laughs> There is no one higher, no one above you. They knew that Jesus was totally in command of even disease and death, and they trusted him to help them. And so the implication of this miracle is that there is something different happening, something ongoing in the life of the people of God right there in Judea and Samaria, that God is up up to something new, right? And that newness is Jesus, uh, who is clean, right? Who, who crosses the boundary into the life of the unclean. Not only uh, it was this geographical, Judea and Samaria, right? Not only is it ethnic, Jew and Samaritan, it's also spiritual. He who is holy, he who is sinless has come to the very rescue of that which is unholy, that which is sinful. I think part of the challenge for the follower of Jesus today is that we often want the miracle, the the healing, the fix, the change, without first considering whom it is we're asking it of. Does that make sense? We want the gift without the the giver, the approach to God as if he's a vending machine. And we're confronted with a question if we bring the worship that he is due, right, from his creation. Because we forget that, that Jesus, whom we proclaim to be both Lord and God, that this is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus who gave himself for the sins of the world. This is Jesus who endured uh, torture and punishment and death for, for our sake. And this is Jesus who was able to step forth from the tomb and leave it empty. It's easy to miss the magnitude of this event because sometimes it seems so far removed from us historically. Something that perhaps is static in our mind. Something that happened long ago. Yet despite the distance between 
the time of Jesus and our time today, the relationship that you and, have, you and I have with Christ is living, it's active, it's dynamic. The Spirit of God lives within you. That's the promise of Scripture to you and to me, that this is an ongoing, um, uh, well, I said dynamic, life-giving relationship for us today. And so we see before us this leper who returns to give his praises to God, and, and we're compelled, we're asked, are we able to do the same? Do we sense the magnitude of what's happened, not just in our own life, but in all of eternity? One day we'll have the opportunity to be on our knees with our face in the ground in worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what's to prevent us from offering praise today? You know, consider the context of the story, too. Think about uh, the holiness that's required to enter the temple, right? The sacrifices that have to be, to be made. Jesus' holiness, all right? And this is why he wraps in this, this part about the temple, right? Because he's going to send them to the priests and send them back to the temple. Part of this is so that he can, he can, uh, he can display, if you will, his holiness, His holiness supersedes the Old Testament holiness code. He will fulfill for those men what they could never fulfill for themselves or what the priests would never do for them. He is what the priests have been after, and yet he does not reveal himself to the priests, does he? He reveals himself to the outcasts, to the marginalized, to those whom the priests declare least deserve it. And so what does it say to you and to me when he's revealed himself to us, right? So why send the men off? Well, I think one, to see if they'd believe him, right? This is that go, you know, as he tells you to do, and well, they do. And I think second, they were to go to the priest, the temple, again, that, that place of sacrifice to offer themselves as a testimony to the healing. Um, and if the priest confirm the healing, guess what? The priests then have to say, well, I guess this guy Jesus really is who he says he is. <laughs> and if the priests have to admit that Jesus is who he says he is, well, we got trouble here in Jerusalem. At least for today, I think we can say a couple things out of the text. There's a major application and a minor application, all right? The major application of this is do you recognize him as such? Do you recognize him as both Lord and God, as the Savior, as the one who went to the cross for your forgiveness? Do you recognize him as such as the one who brings to you life and immortality and light? Have you received him unto salvation Do you believe that Christ died for you and rose again from the dead for you and because of his work on the cross brings you his mercy and his power and his grace and forgiveness? Are we as the people of God able to leave behind the diseased view that we must somehow earn God's love, right? That we somehow must measure up to these standards, artificial standards nonetheless, in in order for us to be accepted by God or be accepted by the church? 
You see, that's what's at stake for the outcasts, and that's what's at stake for the, the world today. Though we may believe we're healthy, you know, at least relative to uh, where you're at, we are spiritual lepers, if you will. Spiritual lepers in need of the great physician who heals both body and soul, just like those ten men. I think, too, and I'll, I'll move into the, the second uh, minor, what I call the minor application is this. You hear the somewhat painful comment in the text that out of the ten, right, how many came back? Right. That nine seemed to be ungrateful, or if we give them even the benefit of the doubt, they were so excited about what happened, right, they just plumb forgot, right? You would have expected all ten to run to Jesus and thank him for that new start on life. But only one did, and it wasn't any of the Jewish men. It wasn't any of Jesus' tribe. It wasn't any of Jesus' kind. It was the foreigner. It was the Samaritan who responded in faith and joy and thanksgiving. So here's the minor application. How is your gratitude barometer? Is it rising or falling? I guess you could use thermometer. I don't Whatever. <laughs> How often do we take the blessings of the Lord for granted and fail to thank the Lord? Psalm 107 says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. We enjoy the gift, but we forget the giver. We're quick to pray, but so slow to offer praise. Let me do something with you this morning. I, I did a little bit differently with the first service, but I want to share with you a song, okay? Jonathan was going to sing it for us today, but since Jonathan had a car accident, but thankfully he's okay, um, we've actually found a, an acoustic version just like he was going to sing uh, online, and so I'm going to play that for you. So listen to the, the vocals, all right, and then we'll, we'll come, back to the, come back to the message. Guide us with perplexity. 
That's uh, Now We Thank All Our God, hymn number 895 in your hymnal. All right, it comes around at least once a year at Thanksgiving, right? and you may recall that. Uh, uh, that uh, but so that song, Thank We Now All Our God, that was written by a pastor named Martin Rinkert, okay, during the Thirty Years' War. Okay, I don't even expect you to know, well, when was the Thirty Years' War, right? Well, it was in the early 1600s. And it is exactly what it says. It was 30 years long, right? And it was so devastating because not only was it a, a conflict which ravaged towns, but it also produced, as a, as a result, a famine and disease. So that, that villages, uh, up to 20 to 50% of the citizens were lost during that time. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 20 to 50% of people being lost in that amount of time? So he, he wrote this song, but think about this. As a pastor, he was doing, when things got so bad, he was doing up to 40 funerals a day. A day! Not a week, not a month, but a day. He even had to do his own family, particularly the one which was the worst for him was his wife. But he wrote this hymn as a response, as a table blessing, if you will, for his family, that in spite of the war and plague and famine around him, despite the sorrow within him and the sorrow in society, uh, he was able to give thanks to the Lord with a grateful heart. Now, I know the 30 years war and 20 to 50 percent lost, I mean, that's an extreme example, right? And I highly doubt that you and I will ever find ourselves in circumstances in that type of situation where we see everything around us collapsing. But where lately have you found yourself? Where lately have you found yourself in a difficult or, or unpleasant or, or frustrating situation? Where in your life are you struggling to give thanks Perhaps it's your finances your, or your health or your relationships. I mean, right? You can fill in the blank. There's, there's enough to go around. I mean, even if it's our, our frustrating first world problems, right? At the very least, that is a place that you and I can learn to begin to give thanks from. A starting point for us to reflect on the mercy and grace of God in our lives, the work of Christ, to begin to practice, as the saying goes, an attitude of gratitude, right? (laughs) 
Because God's grace and our gratitude are worthy companions for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way, if you will. You know, Luke's account closes with that one guy, that Samaritan, shouting glory to God, right? He comes back. Not only does he give thanks, but he gives praise. Yes, his situation has been turned around, most certainly, right? And it would have been normal for him to go with the others to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving at the temple, but he didn't. He returned to Jesus with this sacrifice of praise. Uh, And this is what we're not to forget from this example. The text goes on as you read through the rest of Luke 17, that the Lord is pleased more than anything else with this act of praise. More than the nine going to the temple to offer sacrifices via the priest, the Lord is, is, is pleased more than anything else with this one man who comes back and builds, if you will, an altar of praise at the feet of Jesus. So take the frustrating, take the disheartening, take the uncertain. Take those things in life where you find a challenge to offer a praise of thanksgiving uh, and build an altar there. You see, God so longs to hear our praises, not because he needs them, right? But because they're for us. Our good, our spiritual health, it's the way the Spirit works in our lives to continue to keep us focused, grounded on our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ because it's based on our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ that we're able to offer praise and thanksgiving. You cannot offer praise and thanksgiving on your own strength. So the major applications, not the physical healing as much as great as that is uh, and as much as it grabs the attention and applause of the crowds, right? It's the mercy of God. It's the salvation in the personal work of Jesus standing right there before all those people and what he offers to them who will receive it. And then second, the minor application is that we as the children of God are able to offer uh, gratitude that glorifies him and glorifies him and pleases him as the word tells us. I mean, think about the flip side, right? If you put the text from Romans. The flip side is that unthankful heart being fertile soil for all kinds of sin. Apostle Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then Paul goes into this discussion about that. The outcasts, the marginalized, they all receive Him by faith, but the religious, they reject Him. The marginal people of God, they are the priority of God. He reverses the way of the world and brings forgiveness, binds up the brokenhearted, fills the empty, heals the wounded. Reversing the disease only points to the greater miracle of Jesus himself. So, his grace for us and our gratitude and response to him. In Jesus' name, amen.